I'm Aaron Berg. I'm many things. A son, a husband, an immigrant, a dad. I'm also a Jew. And I fought every stereotype there is about us. I was a bodybuilder, a male stripper. I worked in the sex trade. I became a stand-up comedian. And I realized that to be Jewish is to be badass. Join me and celebrate all the badass Jews out there. And let me tell you, there are a ton. Business moguls, game changers, assassins. They come from every walk of life. This is Badass Jews. And I'm your host, Aaron Berg. My guest today is a true raconteur. In fact, raconteur is the name of the company he spearheads from his hometown of Miami Beach. And I'm not talking pretty little bikini Miami Beach. I'm talking badass, get down and gritty Miami Beach. As a filmmaker, he's made a series of badass documentaries that have penetrated the public conscience. The You, Cocaine Cowboys, dogfight and the new film 537 votes which premieres on hbo max it's my honor to welcome to the show badass jew my friend billy corbin billy welcome to badass jews how you doing here i'm great you're in the midst of a massive press run right now you've been doing it all day uh yeah basically for the past week uh Are you but, exhausted yeah. uh i'm pretty beat yeah and, and they got me starting pretty early also um, which is something I'm not really used to. Oh, that's my alarm to remember to, to get onto your show. Is it? I love <laughs> yes, that we're, I it love you said it for three yes. minutes afterwards. It, it, no, I, I had snoozed it naturally. Um, it was the, it was the, uh, it was Hava Nagila actually was the song. I, uh, the <laughs> ring you want to snooze it again and just have it keep going up every three minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it could be worse. You could have booked Jeff Tubin. Oh God. Um, we, I understand he's Jewish. Now there's photographic evidence of it too. Yeah, apparently, <laughs> We're just going to dig up really nondescript Jews that people just found out were Jewish and have horrible <laughs> track records in life. We're, I want to do a next, my next album is going to be called all my friends are canceled. Welcome to the show. Um, here's the story with Billy Corbin, not originally Billy Corbin, originally born William Cohen in 1978, took the Jewish name, got rid of it to succeed in underground show business. It happens all the time. Tell me what it was like growing up Jewish in Florida, because there are zero Jews in Florida. Is that correct? Well, now there are significantly fewer. Now there's like virtually no Jewish delis uh, anymore, unfortunately. We used to be like second to to new york uh but now there's there's virtually none left and it's because i think most of the most of the jewish population is dying off and uh, subsequent generations are are you know migrating away but um growing up jewish in north miami beach was like it was the shtetl i mean it was just like um it was it was a very jewish neighborhood you know the synagogue we could practically ride our bikes to we didn't but we could we could have um and it was actually, I mean, it was a working class, predominantly Jewish neighborhood that I grew up in called uh, Highland Lakes. Okay. And uh, we did ride our bikes to school. It was a sort of a very idyllic uh, lifestyle, particularly for Miami in the 1980s which and early 90s, which was notoriously quite dangerous. But, uh, but in, 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 in the shtetl, we kind of like, <laughs> as we do, we, once, once we realized we were like, all together, we could insulate ourselves. We we started building guard gates. 
we like we started to sort of like cage ourselves into this area try to insulate ourselves from from the outside world um but it was i don't know like north miami beach uh and that area north miami beach of course one of the one of the uh uh, great cities of the world with the with the word beach in the name, but no beach in the city, of course, yeah. in city limits. Uh, you know, it's like everything with Florida real estate is lies that came true. You know, um, but uh, no, I mean, it, I, it was it was a very all reformed Jews right. uh, in that in that neighborhood. As um, I am myself, which is the best type of Jew. It's very Jewish, not over the top. You still get to enjoy some of the forbidden fruits of Judaism, lobster. Uh, which comes in handy if you're stone crabs down here. Stone, crabs. stone crab is my favorite place to go, even though all the Yelp reviews say the carpet smells like vomit, but the crabs are delicious. <laughs> well, we go to Joe's. You're about Billy's up in uh, in, in Hollywood. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. We, we go to Joe's Stone Crab, the oldest restaurant in uh, in Miami Dade County, probably one of the oldest restaurants in the uh, in the state of Florida. Would you call Reform Jew? kind of a don't give a shit type of Jew, but kind of gives a shit? I mean, yeah, definitely puts the ish into Jewish. Um, yeah. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think that, honestly, I, I think it really does, in my opinion, capture the best of it. I, I, I hate to be so audacious because I don't want to belittle anyone else's commitment to their faith. Um, uh, but like, I, I definitely, you know, spending a lot of time on... Uh, uh, Miami Beach, for example, you know, on 41st Street, which is like the Hasidic, you know, kind of capital of Miami. And watching the Hasids, you know, in the black trench coats and black hats and the long bushy beards and the payas and the schlepping up and down the street in 950 degree weather and 6,000% humidity. I'm thinking, I think we got it right. I think the reformed Jews <laughs> yeah. figured it out. Yeah, we get to just wear T-shirts and flip-flops and still call ourselves Jewish. Yeah. You were born... In the case of Jeff Tubin, not even wear pants on a Zoom call. <laughs> um, born in Fort Myers proper? Yeah, Fort Myers, uh, Florida. My, my, uh, my grandfather um, was a real estate developer and he was developing uh, a, a giant area called um lehigh acres um which was like one of the first like they drained the swamp and built like a grid with with streets on it uh my dad used to show up to a construction site you know at, at dawn and they would find airplanes abandoned in the middle of the the property because like i said they built a grid so they they paved roads but there was no nobody out there yet there wasn't even any houses or any so there was just miles of straightaway for as far as the eye could see. So drug smugglers used it as landing strips if they needed a place to land. And the 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 cocaine was so valuable that they were smuggling, they could just kind of abandon the plane or if the plane crash landed, they could just bring the trucks out, unload the product and just leave, leave the plane behind. I, I get so excited by your stories of South Florida and, and you've turned me on to like this love affair with Florida and I'll always talk to you and be like, I want to move there. And you'll always say, no, you don't. But it's it, the way that you have become this voice of South Florida amazes me. But where did the love affair start? Like were your mom and dad both Jewish? Was that pushed on you at an early age? No, they were born in Philly um, and they were raised Jewish, both of them, but, but again, reformed Jews. So, so not really, not really super Jewish. Um, and, uh, 
I was certainly re- I, it was inevitable that I would be bar mitzvahed, uh, and I was. Um, Where'd that but, happen? Uh, Temple Sinai in North in Miami Beach. North Miami Beach. Yes. How many people would you guess? Oof. Shit, you know, for me, I really did it for my dad and my grandpa, you know, who really, it, it means a lot more to them, obviously, than it does to a 13-year-old kid. You know, it's their moment to kind of be proud and to, yeah. you know, say, here's my young Jewish man or whatever. And and so um, I, I, it was a big party for them. And there was a lot of people. It was a lot of people. Um, we had the, the, the party at the Jockey Club, which is a very famous 80s party spot for I mean just millionaires yachts and just like people people you know in 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 hovercrafts it was it was insane and they had this beautiful like pool deck area and then they had this beautiful dining room um and so uh used to see people like Joe Robbie and Tony Roma there was actually a man named Tony. I, that was one of the most exciting celebrity celebrities I ever met in the jockey club dining room so my grandfather introduced me to Tony Roma it was yeah. like meeting like Wendy or McDonald's or, yeah. Bur- or the Burger King. It was like Tony Romo. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, for those of you that don't know, it was a place for ribs. People don't know that. It was indeed. Uh, yeah. But like uh, there was hundreds of people there. And for, but for me, it was kind of like my last hurrah in formal Judaism. Because I remember, you know, I was already a child actor at that point. I think I had just changed my name around then, which we can get into. But um, I – so so – so we had this thing where we were going to, I guess, in Hebrew school classes or something, you know, the rabbi sat us around in a circle and said something like, um, he passed out a piece of paper and to all of us. And he said, um, this is a contract that says, this is like just ahead of our bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs to the group. This is a contract that says um, that you will... Com- that after your bar mitzvah, bar, bar and bat mitzvahs, you will commit to your continuing Jewish education and get confirmed and have a confirmation, which that was really the first I remember even hearing about a confir- or confirmation. I'm not even sure I attended my, my friend's confirmation. I'm not even sure what that was. But I remember saying to the rabbi, I was like, first of all, the bar mitzvah is where it ends for me. And... And second of all, we're like 12 and 13 years old. That's not a legally binding contract. <laughs> you said that. <laughs> yes, which, which is. <laughs> As one half of the legal team of Cohen and Cohen, I must say that this contract is not with the parchment on which it is written. Rippy, rippy, ow, I just gave myself a paper cut. You now have another lawsuit coming against you, sir. <laughs> Did you really say that? This is not a legally binding contract. Yes, because you're like 12 and 13 years old. (laughs) Which at the time I thought, like, like, oh, that's the most obnoxious child actory thing to say. And now that we're talking about it, it's kind of the most Jewy thing (laughs) to say. It's so funny. (laughs) So you become a child actor at what age? Oh, I was like five or six. That's, that's what you wanted to do. Was it because of the allure of like, I want to be a famous boy? Or was it just like, oh, I like, I like playing play? Yeah, I, I, saw, I saw someone in the neighborhood. Jen Schatz was her name. I saw her on TV in a Sears bicycle commercial. Um, and uh, she, um, 
uh, I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen because here was this, you know, girl I knew in real life yeah. from like Hebrew school or what elementary school or whatever, and and like there she was on top. I just thought that was like badass, and I was like, um, I want to do that. Yeah. Um, and I just thought that was really and and I was not good at sports. That seems right. So, but my brother was fantastic at sports. Like he was this little Jewish kid who was good at everything, you name it, ice hockey, football, basketball, soccer, baseball, especially baseball. And he, so after school, like my dad having two boys would take us to do sports stuff. And then I, at my first at bat, at the North Miami Beach Optimist T-Ball League, I struck out. Okay. And I think that was the beginning of the end of my sports career. And so I started to seek other after-school activities to, to busy myself, and it turned out to be auditions. I would go out on auditions, and um, uh, and I would start, I would book, be booking jobs, like left and right. And we had a ton, a ton of... Of, of, of that kind of action going on down here back then. You know, cat modeling, catalog stuff, and then just a ton of TV commercials. I mean, you name it. I did a, a commercial, like you name a product sector. And I did a commercial for it um, down here in the in the 80s and early 90s. And Now, and, were yeah. you up against other guys that looked like you all the time or was there like some diversity in casting that you were going up against? There was... It was, I mean, it's Miami. It's, there's, it's, yeah. you know, there's a lot of different kinds of people down here. So I, I think there was a lot of, now, of course, they're always, you know, looking for a type, you know, in, in commercials, oftentimes they're casting a family, you know, so they need a mom, a dad, a, a son and a daughter who kind of look alike. Um, yeah. And then sometimes it was when I did to, like toy commercials or serial commercials, they were deliberately looking to cast like a ragtag band of misfits that were different you know, sizes, shapes, and colors. And at Funny Postscript, Jen Schatz from the old neighborhood, from the shtetl, who, who inspired me to end the child acting, is now married to Horatio Sands. Oh, wow. Small world shit, yeah. Like Jewish geography. Did you Cuban, ever get Cuban to geography. be in a commercial with Schatz and then be like, oh, this is the dream come true? Never, we never worked together. We never had the, <laughs> the, the pleasure of that collaboration. So do you start getting recognized by the kids you would go to school with and they'd be like, oh my God, that's... That's William Cohn. He's in that commercial. I don't remember that. I, I imagine it did happen, but um, uh, there were certain ads that were like ubiquitous. Like there was a Trix cereal commercial that like was on all the time. That one I remember. And people like going, "Oh, I saw your commercial on TV." It was mostly just a cool, cool thing. Um, yeah, and and it was a side hustle. You know, I was in school also full-time at that time. And then until Ron Howard came to town uh, and he was casting for the movie Parenthood yeah, um, in about 1988. And, and that was, that was a life-changing uh, experience. So what happens there? Well, I got cast. I got a funny role uh, in that where I'm the kid at the birthday party that curses um, and, and gets a lot of interaction with Steve Martin in a couple scenes um, and being the kid that cursed in Parenthood. And then when uh, Steve Martin would go on to different talk shows like Johnny Carson and Arsenio Hall to promote the movie, they would send him with a clip that I was interacting with him on where I didn't curse. But, 
and so that was incredible. Like mom got to see and hear me on the Tonight Show. Uh, and uh, then as happens, like a, a manager started to reach from LA, started to reach out to my agent down in Miami and say, send me your most like talented kids. Really what she meant was the kids that book shit. So your most successful, your highest grossing kids. Yeah. Send them out to LA for a summer or a pilot season and then let them audition and just kind of see how it goes. And that wound up being a, a several year kind of odyssey back and forth. So you go to LA for how long back and forth? First summer I booked like, I booked like two or three jobs. I did wow. like a guest spot on a show. I got like a, uh, a TV movie, which is a backdoor pilot uh, for NBC. Like I just, I, I just had a lot of luck that first summer. And so um, wound up coming back when that show didn't get picked up, wound up coming out every pilot season, would do a bunch of guest spots, would, would do a movie, um, and then would do a pilot every single year. And in those days, you could only do one pilot. You were just locked in and to that, and they had first right of refusal over you, and they owned you. And if they wanted to fire you, they'd fire you, and then you'd be jobless, um, which wasn't really a problem at my age. But like, um, or they'd pick up the show, and then you were obligated to it for as long as they as they wanted you. But you couldn't do more than two pilots. Uh, nowadays, I feel like everybody like there's actors who are on six, seven shows at the same time. Like it just wasn't like that back yeah. then. Um, by and at this point, you're how old? Like this is like eleven, twelve. This is like leading up to my bar mitzvah and just and just beyond. So this is kind of like ages, maybe like twelve, let's say eleven, twelve through fifteen, sixteen. And I would work just just a lot, and then we'd we'd stay for most of pilot season, and then go back to uh, to Miami. Now in Miami, you're in this shtetl type neighborhood. Yeah. It's incredibly diverse. Do you encounter in your teen years? any form of anti-Semitism? None that I remember in Miami. None that I remember. Uh, any run-ins in LA where you're, you know, another incredibly diverse town, but does it happen to you? Does it form any, any of your part of rebellion? Because it seems like you were kind of a rebellious dude right from the get-go. It shows in like the work you do where you're cursing opposite Steve Martin, obviously. But why... What breaks you out of this, I'm going to go this traditional Jewish route, and instead it's show business for you? And then, it. hang on one second, my daughter's yelling at me as I said oh. show business because she thinks I got to, give me 30 seconds. <laughs> so we talked about anti-Semitism. You're being chased by these guys in a Ford F-150 with tiki torches. You're running down I-95 trying to get to A1A. The, what? Okay, well, I'm trying to do a show with Billy Corbin. What do you, what do you need? Who the hell is that? He was a child actor, and now he makes some films. Oh, oh, you, mean William, oh you mean William Cohen? <laughs> what do you need? I, I'm doing a show, honey. <laughs> Sorry, guys, hang on one second. My daughter's crying, so I got to run up some badass Jew hot sauce for her. She always cries when we run out upstairs. It's a real thing. We have a hot sauce called Badass Jew Hot Sauce, and you can get it from Silk City Hot Sauce. And if you use the code BADASS, like as a promo code, you get 20% off. And it is so good, it'll leave you for Klimt. I'm coming. I've got three bottles with me. Do not go through them all tonight and stop watching your iPad. 
Oh no, come on. I can't. Okay. Don't open. I can't open all these. There's too many. Honey, I'm trying to do a show. Here. And don't no, you're gonna mix them all together. Yeah. Got it? Okay, thanks. And leave the rest. Sorry, Aaron. Uh, where, what, what, what is it you want, Aaron? <laughs> Look, I'm trying to sell a kid. Uh, do you know anybody? <laughs> let's let's. So you had you hadn't dealt with any anti-Semitism. You go to school for. I, well, I deal with more anti-Semitism now than I did then. But an Thank interesting. God, it, good. Give an me interesting, some. An interesting thing happened though, when I was about four. If I recall correctly. So here I'm already like, what am I like eight, nine years into this career where I've been working pretty nonstop um, as a child actor. And uh, every year my parents are like, please let us know when you're done with this. Like, <laughs> like they, they couldn't, they were, they could not have been more supportive, but they also could not have been more, uh, uh, well, really supportive of what it was that I wanted to do. And so the moment I was done with it, they were willing to, they were ready every every pilot season to not do this. So um, I finally, what was happening was I was going out in a lot of auditions as Billy Cohen. And what we were talking about earlier, like when you're they're trying to cast a certain type or you have like a celebrity who's playing the dad, you know, in a show and you're going out for the son and I remember there was this one particular show. I'm not going to. Um, there was a very like kind of Midwestern kind of actor in the, you know, it was a pilot in the, Bill in Cosby. the lead. Bill Cosby. Then, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was not Bill Cosby. Okay. And, um, and I remember going into the room where I presume, by the way, that the director and most of the producers were probably Jewish. If I had to go out on a limb. Right. Okay. Um, or at least some of them were. And I remember walking in the room and one of the producers, the director, whoever it was looked at the, um, at my headshot and said, Oh, Billy Cohen, nice Jewish boy. And every, we all laughed. And then I did the audition. I, I didn't think about it until later. But like when you're auditioning for the role of the son of some, you know, Midwest, you know, corn-fed Midwestern actor, yeah, and someone, even a, a fellow Jew, kind of puts it out there, if you know what I mean. Like, you can't cast this Jewish kid as yeah. this guy's son. It, uh, you, you realize that it kind of, you know, it wasn't anti-Semitism, but I think you, you know what I'm saying. Like, you need every advantage when you're going in a room for an audition. At least have a level playing field, you know. And so my my agent at the time came came to my mom and I and said, maybe we should change Billy's name to kind of cre to create a neutral playing field. So at least that wouldn't be an issue. I wasn't quite as nebbishy as I am now. In those that you, yeah. I could, I could. That's the thing about a lot of Jews is that we, you know, we can kind of disappear if we need to you know, into, into civilized society, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, that was the, and I, I, 
I haven't told this story a lot, but I remember sitting in my mom's car. We were in Westwood outside the apartment uh, that we lived in and having this conversation. And my mom was like, whatever you want to do. That's how my mom was. My mom is a badass, badass Jew. And, um, and I was crying. Yeah. I was crying. I was crying. I said, I said, I'm not embarrassed about who I am. That is my grandfather's name and his grandfather's name. And, and I'm, and I'm just, I was, I was devastated. I was devastated, particularly as you grew up learning that the Jews control all media and enter the entertainment industry in Hollywood. Yeah. And here I am. <laughs> and and we run the weather. I don't know if you know that or not. Sharpie, the magic Sharpie runs the weather. Yeah. Let's be real okay. about this. But, um, but no, I, I, but yeah, that's, and, and then I, I sort of came around to it and, and, and I remember then the bottom line was like, well, my mother said it was a really good argument. She was like, listen, if you want to stop doing this, we can stop doing this. If you want to continue doing this, and this is what your professional advisors are telling you to do, then you have to seriously consider it. And so I did. And I remember sitting down and we were like trying to change the name the least we could, you know, like, and, and, um, and so like coming up with, and people, I was, I was doing a, a recurring role at the time uh, or, or just before, just after that, rather, I got, I booked a, uh, a recurring role on LA law. And so people later thought I changed my name after Corbin Burson <laughs> <laughs> of, of major league fame. And, and that wasn't true. We just, we just came up with it kind of looking at the H and making it an R, but it was a, it was a, it was a random it was a random kind of thing. And then it just kind of stuck. It became my, my professional uh, name, so to speak. You know, it's something we don't think about, and it's kind of the first time we've encountered it on this show. And you say it's not anti-Semitism, but it's weird that within the Jewish culture, there is this thing where it's like, oh, that name is going to be too Jewish. And we, we haven't encountered it. We've encountered other incidences, but not like a Jew-on-Jew -Jew kind of racism, which is amazing. Which leads me to the next question. You've been in the business for years. Do Jews really run the media? I think that you could argue that there's an advantage, but it's it's a fraternity, like like any fraternity or sorority. I mean, if you find people who are like-minded or who are, you know, have the same religion or went to the same college, I, I mean, I, I feel like certain colleges are far more influential in media and industry and government than, than even the Jews are, I think, in media. So I think there are those kind of cabals or tribalism all over every every industry. And so, yes, th th I think Jews are a particularly powerful tribe within the, the media and entertainment world, but there are others, you know, there's, right. there certainly are, and there are other comparable things and other, or other comparable tribes. Again, it could be a universal, I mean, alumni, you know, like, of a particular university have an advantage going into certain companies or industries. Um, but no, I mean, I wouldn't say that, that, that Jews, uh, that Jews run the me media, but I, I think it would be, it, it would be foolish to, to deny that it's a very, in, that group is very influential though in that right. industry. But there's also this weird paradigm where it's like, you look at a case like you and other people for years and years where they're like, I'm too, my name is too Jewish. I need to change my name. So it's like this representation of Jews in the media is almost to downplay the Judaism of people. Well, what's interesting is that I, 
I didn't know how Jewish the name was until my bar mitzvah. So the rabbi says, we're like in our like one-on-one rabbi prep, you know, bar mitzvah prep, you know, uh, uh, lesson or whatever. And he says, okay, so um, we, you got to pick your aliyahs. So these are the people you remember who come up on the bima and say a little prayer around your Torah portion. And so um, I've not talked this much about my bar mitzvah in ever. I know that's why in, in it's ever. so amazing. It's for um, people that are really missing their bar mitzvahs. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so not a lot of people is what you're, is what you're saying. Um, you're, you're the last guy after but, this. We've run out. I think it's um, but uh, I, so he says to me, he goes, oh, he goes, he goes, I presume, I presume there will be at least one Kohen. And I was like, like, I was like, Kohen? He's like, yes, there will be a, your, your grandparents or your parents. I was like, well, yeah, yeah, Cohen, there'll be. Like, he goes, okay, Jewish law says that if there is at least one Kohen, Aliyah, they must go first. If you have multiple Kohanes, the subsequent ones can be in any, any position, any number. after. But if, but, but if there are any Kohanes, one of them must be the very first Aliyah. And I'm like, there's a, a law about about my last name like that was the moment and that came into play later when when the wheels were turning about should i or shouldn't i change my name i was like well the rabbi said there's a law like <laughs> there's like a a rule that like with if you have this last name you have to have the first aliyah at a bar mitzvah and that's like that's some that's heavy shit you're this jew in this city that sounds horrible. It sounds like I'm reading it. By the way, words. anybody anybody else starts a sentence with those first three words, I hang up the phone. So you you're, this you're, a, you're this Jew. You're this Jew. We'd like to reach out to you for March of Dimes. Um, <laughs> you're this Jew in this town, and you've become synonymous with the films that come out of that town. The, the city is the art that runs through your veins. Nearly everything you touch is Miami-centric. Do you consider, by the way, I watched your movie. I've watched almost all your movies, but I watched one that's coming out this week. Um, it is this week, right? Yes. Oh, wait. We, this could air next week. I watched your movie that, I'm going to tell you about 537 votes. You have a love of now, now, now available on HBO Max. Yes. I've watched your movie that's now available on HBO Max. That's, um, that's chronologically neutral. Yeah. Everything is about South Florida to you. Um, I don't think it would work in other cities or with another director. I think there'd be a point where someone would be like, okay, three movies is enough about this fucking town. Uh, You managed to hit every angle of Miami life without exhausting it. And every topic becomes so interesting through your storytelling. So your first movie that goes to Sundance Film Festival, Raw Deal, A Question of Consent, how do you come to deal with a topic that is very clearly taboo in that time and handle it as a man dealing with this story? Wow, what a pivot. Um, Well, our first documentary was a Florida true crime story. So very much in what would later kind of become our, our milieu, not in Miami, uh story but uh, very much a gainesville 
you know, University of Florida, a campus story. Um, and so we honestly, this is interesting because uh, the influence uh, on this has a lot to do with where I grew up because um, I told you it's this working class, middle class Jewish neighborhood. And so I had friends who went on to um, our flagship state schools, FSU, University of Florida. And so um, we, uh, we heard from a friend one day. This is in the spring of 1999. And he said, did you hear about this case at the Delta Chi fraternity house where um, this exotic dancer claims that she was sexually assaulted by these men and that it was all captured on videotape? I had actually read about it. Uh, online, that was a thing at the time, in the independent Florida Alligator, the student-run newspaper at UF, and uh, they covered it quite extensively. And uh, the videotape of the alleged assault had just become public record. And what was happening in Gainesville at the time was that um, there was such a backlog of requests for it at the state attorney's office and the and the, uh, the clerk of courts, that if you were the first person like on your block to get it, people would have like keggers. They'd have like house parties to watch what became known as the quote, rape tape, end quote. And it took on this horrific, like this macabre kind of Rocky horror, like cult thing in, in the town, uh, in the small college town. And so, and so uh, I heard from a friend who grew up in the neighborhood, grew up in the shtetl with us. And that's relevant to kind of illustrate that we grew up with different experiences. You know, white Jewish kids growing up in the same area, similar socioeconomic status, schooling, background, um, family situation, uh, and called up and said, you know, I just saw the tape and it was horrifying what these guys did to this woman. Like it was disgusting. I, I haven't been able to like to sleep well or, or really eat since I saw it. And it was absolutely just horrifying. I can't believe these guys aren't in jail. And then within days of that, I spoke to another friend. Again, we were all friends, we, like guys that I grew up with in the, in the neighborhood. Where they were at my bar mitzvah, I was at their bar mitzvah. We went to school together. And he said, did you hear about the tape? I said, yeah. I said, he said, I just saw it. It's like, this woman's a lying piece of scum. I can't believe she cried rape and she falsely accused these guys. I'm glad she got arrested for filing a false police report. They should lock her up, throw away the key. She's a liar. And I was like, just like you, I had the same, I was like, what just happened? Like, how did these two people who, you know, whose life experiences are, you know, in terms of bringing, bringing them to bear on this issue or this footage, should have been, they should have had comparable responses, but they didn't. They were so divergent. I mean, how do you watch an objective recording of an event? And these two guys completely disagree as to whether or not they witnessed a consensual uh, sex act. And that's what inspired us to, to basically get the videotape, take a leave of absence from, from college and go and pursue that story. It's... It's so amazing how you take the controversy of two people that are so close to you. And this is what goes into your filmmaking, right? Is you've got these two sides of your brain going, this side thinks this thing, this side thinks this thing. Where does the twain meet, right? Well, I think it's, 
you know, we had made a gamble after uh, Sundance, or really at Sundance. You know, we, we at the time in January of 2001, we were the youngest filmmakers in Sundance history uh, with Raw Deal, A Question of Consent. And then we did like, ours was the first movie to sell out all of its tickets in advance. Like when, when you know, they opened up uh, ticket sales, we... Um, we were on the front page of the New York Post with the movie. It was crazy. And uh, we did like 60 interviews in five or six days. And the last question of every interview was always the same. It was kind of like, well, now that you've arrived, now that you've had a Sundance hit, um, are you guys going to move to New York or LA? And um, just as obvious as it was to them that we were going to move to New York or LA, uh, it was just as obvious to us that we would go home uh, to Miami. Yeah. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, home is where you go when you're done with other shit. That's why they call it home. That's number one. Number two, we had worked so hard on, on this, our first documentary for the last year, that we didn't really come to Sundance prepared. You know, with like a slate or a new pitch or a treatment or anything else we wanted to do. We just didn't, we just were working on this one documentary. I wasn't even finished editing it. I came back to Miami and finished it after the Sundance premiere. And um, so, and the last thing was, we kind of, like, we thought that we wanted to be like big fish in a small pond. And we wanted to, like, build our brand around Miami-centric stuff. We thought it was a real untapped, or undertapped, not untapped, but undertapped resource of extraordinary characters and stories that we wanted to, to tell and to bring to light. And we wanted to be the Miami guys. We didn't want to be three more schmucks peddling our wares in New York or LA. It's hard to hard to break through, you know, but we wanted the Miami filmmakers, like, you know, the way that, that I mean, Kevin Smith's the New Jersey guy, M. Night Shyamalan's the Philly guy or the Pennsylvania guy, uh, you know, uh, uh, Rick Linklater and Robert Rodriguez are the Austin guys. Um, New York is, is Spike Lee and Martin Scorsese, uh, Baltimore, you know, is is Barry Levinson and John Waters. And, and you know, like we, we just wanted to be associated, like wanted to be, oh, Miami people. When you think Miami, we wanted to, and that was our gamble. Like that we said, okay, let's let's see how this, how this goes. And to that end, we wanted to do a Miami uh, calling card. You know, we needed a, because Raw Deal was a Florida true crime thing, but it wasn't a Miami thing. And so yeah. we needed a Miami thing to do next. Which is where Cocaine Cowboys comes from. It is. So Meanwhile, I got, I got a boogie in my nose. And, and as I struggled with it on your show, I realized like the director of Cocaine Cowboys is never going to get the benefit of the doubt when I get, <laughs> you know, when I'm like, when I'm doing battle with my schnoz, you know, in the yeah. middle of a, of a podcast. Um, <laughs> it's brave to stay in your home and say, this is going to be our risk is to stay here and make something out of this instead of like, a risk is going to be to go to New York and try and fit in. So some people would be like, oh, was he afraid to go to New York or LA? And it's the exact opposite. It's badass to stay and put your home on the map. It's a really fucking cool thing to do, man. I don't know. Listen, we were young and dumb and, <laughs> and, and but, but I think we were onto something. I mean, yeah. it, 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 it's easy to say now because it's paid off, but I really did. Like we, we, we were convinced of it. And, and we really thought that, you know, we knew reading T.D. Ullman's book, Miami City of the Future, you know, that the Miami of today is the America of tomorrow. That if you want to know what, uh, you know, uh, challenges will face or calamities will befall us as a nation in the years or even decades to come, you need to only look at, 
at South Florida. I mean, it's it's always it's just trend setting in pop culture, in crime, in drugs, in politics and socioeconomic uh, uh, matters. I mean, it's just like and, and we felt like there was there are lessons to be gleaned, profound lessons to be gleaned from Miami's past and its present. And I think that bears out in 537 votes. I think it's like, I think, feel like there are like lessons we need to make sure we know right now, like this very minute that, yeah. that we are remo- trying to remind you about from the 2000 Florida recount. The thing that pops is when you see like the Miami as a banana republic because of what's happening. And I've been saying it over the past year, I'm like, there's civil unrest in this country that is reminiscent of a banana republic. And then to see it, put in a film and be like, oh, I was right the whole time. Because whenever Billy Corbin agrees with me via film, I know I'm right. Um, <laughs> let's jump in to the Jewish crossover into these worlds. Drugs, which is exposed, obviously, through cocaine cowboys. You, uh, the Cuban influence. And we talked about, uh, you know, Scarface made a movie of it. You made a much truer movie about it. Scarface was the glamorization and the downfall of the drug trade. But Cocaine Cowboy shows how Miami was built up on cocaine money. So I want to know how a Jew gets involved in two things, the world of drugs via Cocaine Cowboy and the world of basically backyard fighting by a dog fight. Well, I mean, there's always a lot of, you know, where, where, where there's enterprise, there are Jews you know, <laughs> somewhere in there. And, and you know, I, I always say that the only successful uh, real world example or case study of Reagan's trickle down economics was Miami in the cocaine boom of the 1980s. That was the only place where you could say like this extraordinary, uh, 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 you know, top down industry. We saw the money trickle into every facet of society, right down into infrastructure and help, you know, build the foundation of, of, of the modern city um, that we know and love. Or, or I should say, everybody um, outside of Miami uh, loves to hate it, and everybody in Miami hates to love it. Uh, but that story, of course, involved Cubans, Colombians, Jews, African-Americans, Haitians, Jamaicans. Um, and so uh, really, the and, the and the true tribalism of Miami, and that's the most interesting thing, is that there's this common misconception that Miami is a melting pot. It is not a melting pot. It is far more akin to a TV dinner where sometimes the peas fall into the mashed potatoes, but we definitely self-segregate and we fly our flags. It's like Game of Thrones in paradise with iguanas instead of dragons. Like that's what it is. And so it, there's a constant tension through different between different Hispanic groups, between African Americans, between Jews. The other thing too is we're a, a minority majority or majority minority community. So when the Cuban Americans and the Cuban exiles started to come in and, and get become a power base both politically and economically, um, the the horrible tradition of American cities are we treat African Americans like second class citizens. They became third class citizens in Miami. So there is a completely not underrepresented but unrepresented African American community, and then below that you have the Haitian Americans and and various other you know uh, island uh, you know Caribbean and, and, and Bahamian Islanders uh, here, and and then other Hispanics and and all sort of going to war with each other, uh, and that's really what 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 that's what Cocaine Cowboys is really all about, 
And that's really what, what America now is all about. There's a flashiness that goes right against what was happening. Like in Miami, there's so much money being thrown around. There's nightclubs and bell-bottom pants and people disco dancing. I know it's the 80s, but then there's the murder rate is through the roof in the 80s. I mean, it's Time Magazine, what they call it like Murder City or something on the cover of Time. Paradise Lost. Paradise Paradise Lost, Lost. yeah. Uh, But there seems still something glamorous about it, yet simultaneously it was the Wild West. And you were growing up during that time what was that like i mean you're in this little jewish neighborhood but are you aware of all the stuff going on around you when you were a kid vaguely i think miami vice was extremely influential in that regard you know i mean miami and and its relationship to miami vice is very much um art imitating life imitating art you know, imitating life, imitating art. It like kind of went on and on uh, with that, you know, because Miami got this reputation for being dangerous, but that somehow made it sexy and cool. And Miami, which is a tourism-based economy, it's all tourism and and what's not drugs is all tourism and and real estate-based and money laundering, of course, but that's kind of all tied into real estate and and drugs as well. Um, But we started to trade on that image dangerous but sexy and cool and that it that has worked uh for for quite some time when i was a kid i grew up like middle class in, in toronto but there there was this allure to me and th- and this is kind of what took me off on my path you know i don't know if you know like i stripped for a while i did all this very non-traditional jew stuff but there was this allure of going down to the projects and like walking around and sensing this life that I didn't know because I was raised middle-class and, you know, we, we had stuff, but we didn't have the best stuff. So it was always comparative. And then you would go down to the projects and just see, you know, like people fighting in the streets and people getting slapped around and, and drugs. And there was something that I was drawn to. Did you feel that? Did you, you know, the drug world, the fighting world? Not, not to the illegality or, or, you know, not, not to the drug world itself. I've never been a, uh, a drug user. I, I tried pot very late in life. I mean, I actually in the last like seven, eight years or so for the first time. And when you um, call it pot, people know that you don't do it a lot. I dabbled in the devil's lettuce in the, in the mid to late tens. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but you know, um, I, uh, so that that was not alluring to me. What I thought was appealing, and I and and I thought that was the true appeal, for example, of of Scarface and the Tony Montana character, of course, was the Horatio Alger story, the rags to riches story, the American dream, or a twisted take on the American dream. And to some extent, all of our documentaries, or most of our documentaries, have 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 traded in that genre, the twisted take, or the American dream by any means necessary. Yeah. And that's in, in no small part what drew me to, to the dogfight. Uh, story as well. Um, and, and I think part of it is that, you know, a lot of people, when you, when they think of Miami, they think of 10 blocks of Ocean Drive from mm-hmm. 5th Street to 15th Street. That's all they know. Um, I mean, even when you watch a Miami Dolphins or a Miami Hurricanes game on television, okay, they go from the field to the blimp shot to, to South Beach. Yeah. South Beach is 18 miles away from the stadium. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's like 10 cities away from where, from Miami Gardens 
also known as Murder Gardens, which is where Joe Robbie Stadium or whatever it's called now, Hard Rock Stadium, Dolphin Stadium is located. And so we like to shine kind of like lights on the map. That's how Miami Day was illuminated for me. I went to a magnet school, New World School of the Arts, where it fed from kids from all over the county. So I didn't just have friends from my neighborhood like I did in middle school and elementary school, but I suddenly, it opened up the whole county for me. And like all these places that I'd been in my childhood, like, you know, we went down out west or we went down south. And so I knew this shopping mall or I knew Santa's Enchanted Forest and Tropical Park. I knew these, I went to this comic book store. We went way far away to go to this badass comic book store in South Miami. I knew little, but then the map opened up for me. I I always likened it to, to OG Legend of Zelda. Remember the map of Hyrule? Like you travel different places, the map would illuminate these little boxes until the whole thing. And that was what it was like for me. Like I got to travel around and suddenly illuminated the whole map and opened up the world. And we wanted to do that with our docks. We like, let's illuminate. Who the hell knew what West Perrine was? I know a guy who drives through West Perrine every single day from the turnpike, you know, to go to his house in in a ritzier area, you know, part of town. He didn't even know West Prime was a place. He saw it on his Amex card because he stopped at a gas station right off the highway on his way home or whatever. And he thought his credit card got stolen because he saw some gas station. He goes, what the hell's Prime? I don't even know what that is. And he real, that's how he discovered it existed. So these are real places with real people with real fucking struggles in this country who think that their best chance at the American dream is to participate in an unsanctioned, illegal, bare-knuckle brawl in a backyard. I mean, that's inherently tragic, and and that is Miami, and I thought that was fascinating. There's something really badass about taking on these stories that may not otherwise be told or may not otherwise reach an audience that you do. There's something really badass about it, man, and and that's what makes you a badass filmmaker. Now, you're I do want to tell you this. I do want to tell you this though, because because this is because I was very inspired by by the story of Dogfight as well. And what I learned before that is that my grandfather, I told you, he was a a developer. He was one of, if not the first developer in South Florida to build homes for working class African Americans. And he saw an opportunity because we had this burgeoning uh, population of professional African Americans, school teachers, uh, nurses. Uh, cops, postal workers, um, and he he created. He went to a bank and he said, "Listen, if they can bring us, a, if they own a lot of land, and they have a pay stub, they have pay stubs, they have a job, will you write them a mortgage and I'll build them a house?" And he made that happen. And he made that happen in Liberty City, in Perrine, which became these working class uh, uh, African American neighborhoods. My grandfather built a bunch of the houses in that neighborhood in Perrine. So, and, but like, listen, you realize Jews have always been sort of on the, have always been on the cutting edge and the front line of desegregation, of equality, of, and, and if there's a hustle, if there's a, if there's a business hustle to be had all the better, but, but those collaborations between, you know, American Jews and African Americans uh, have, have always been there. Have you gone to Israel? I have not. I got to jump off, dude. I had a 7.30. I'm sorry. They're busting okay. my balls about this other Zoom. Uh, but okay. but I want to, uh, yeah, hang on. I'll say, give me a minute. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I have, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, let me a- answer that question. Okay. I have not been to Israel. Okay. I know from talking to you and know about your past that you're critical of pro-Israel organizations. Do you think a visit to Israel would change your stance on it? 
I'm not critical of, of pro-Israel organizations. Oh, hang on, I'm critical of this 4chan chat that I was on. I'm, hang on. I'm critical. <laughs> I'm critical. I'm critical of any extremist movement. I'm critical of any movement um, that feels that that its superiority uh, takes priority over over that of, of of other lesser fortunate people. I don't I don't care if it's on the left or the right. I don't care if it's you know uh, if it's a uh, you know, a white supremacist group or a Jewish supremacist group or even a, a Cuban exceptionalism group, wherever it is, I, I think extremism is bad. I think, we, I think we're all better off when we meet in the middle and we come up with some kind of compromise, nor am I interested in particularly in getting in the middle of a multi-thousand year war, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> between, between tribes. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm extremely supportive of the right of an oppressed people uh, to have a safe haven, uh, to have a home. Uh, I think the the real challenge of this world and in this life for all of us in, in the United States right now more than ever is to coexist. How do we all, you know, in, in, in the words of, uh, of Rodney King, can't we all just get along? <laughs> Can we go to Israel together real quick? If I got these guys to pay for it, you want to do a week? Real quick? <laughs> We're going to Israel <laughs> Real quick, why don't you go to out? Just see, see the good stuff. I can stuff. go to, I can go to, uh, I can go to Forty First Street, in Miami Beach. It's the same. It's like Tel Aviv. It's a Tel Aviv vibes. Uh, you, I'll meet you, get you there that. in February. Uh, Five hundred and thirty-seven votes on HBO Max, dude. You are an inspiration. You're fucking hilarious. So quick. I love what you do. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Billy Corbin. Any advice to young Jews listening to badass Jews today about following their dreams? Don't change your name and do you. I, I followed I followed half that advice and it's and it's done me pretty well. So I think if you do both, you know, I mean, it d- didn't exactly do Steven Spielberg much harm. So brother, I love you. I know you got so much to do. Thanks, I love dude. the new movie. Thank you so much for taking time. Thank you for today. having me, dude. All right. All right. See ya. Bye guys. Thank you. <laughs>